Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. So, Kate. what is astonishing you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, no, I just told you, first. this is my fourth Zoom meeting in four hours, so I definitely am going to need you to take the lead. Sure. Time. Wow, I cannot imagine four zoom meetings in one day i've done three four or i am i am i think the takeaway we can all get from this is that i am just that busy and important and important of course my friends are important yep so well here's what's astonishing me um and it may not be a big deal to anyone else maybe a few people in the world, but I heard on the news the other day and I had to do a double take because at first I didn't believe it. I heard that NASCAR, in response to the protests that have been happening, that NASCAR has banned uh, the Confederate flag at its events. Holy cow, wow. I never thought about even asking that, um, asking for that. My, my assumption was that that was so entrenched in the culture of NASCAR that, that that's just, that, that's just something I, I wouldn't have asked for. And, you know, full disclosure here, I have attended um, a NASCAR event, um, went to drag races here in Charlotte, the Motor Speedway, a couple of years ago, and uh, there are not a lot of people who look like me. As a matter of fact, I think in all of NASCAR, I think there's one African American driver. Yep. Um, I got yep. to meet him, and right, I mean, he stands out. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm astonished by that. And I, I was listening to, uh, I, I was trying to figure out, okay, so what does this mean? What what does this say? And I'm not sure. And I was listening to. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts um, called uh, Pass the Mic. And Jamar uh, Tisby, one of the hosts of that podcast, said, and he was just reflecting on um, our time in general, these, these protests. He said, we are either on the edge of transformation or the edge of the entrenchment of white supremacy. Yeah. And that has resonated with me. Um, and you know, when I think about this whole NASCAR thing, I think, well, let, let's see if this takes. What, what's gonna be the response of people who are really in that industry, who are, who are the fans? Will, will there be some uh, great backlash and entrenchment of white supremacy? Or will, will this be a lasting change? Will this be a culture shift within NASCAR? So I'm, I'm watching to see, but I, I'm just astonished by the fact that they would come out and announce this. I mean, for me, this is bigger than um, 
Roger Goodell and the NFL because basically the players said to him, they confronted him, you need to say this, you need to say something. And right. he wouldn't have, and unless the players, uh, if, if the players hadn't publicly made a statement and uh, publicly asked him to say something and to apologize, he wouldn't have. And so this NASCAR thing is, is just bigger than even the NFL statement for me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting because we are preachers. So we are people who believe that words said out loud have power. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it is not a coincidence or really to me, even a metaphor. I mean, it is obviously, but it's more than a metaphor that Jesus is called the word, right? So, I mean, I, mm -hmm. words matter um, and gestures matter. But I also think, you know, it's hard to know I mean, A, like, you know, like the podcaster you mentioned, if this is going, if these words are a tipping point, which way, like which direction the tip will happen. Um, and I think it's really important that we all, that everybody recognizes that these are um, Kairos moments, like future shaping moments. And if, you know, it's like, makes me think of that verse about like, if a demon is cast out and the house is swept clean, and then it comes back with, you know, seven more. Like I do think, because I mean, I'm super glad that that has happened. And I do think that has power, but if, but if we think like painting black lives matter on the street and banning the Confederate flag means that um, the police departments in the country don't need to get overhauled, then that's actually really, really counterproductive. I mean, if, if, you know, it in a way sort of reinforces this idea that white privilege and racism are just about making people feel bad and not about these deeper life shaping issues of systems that favor one group of our population at the expense of another. And so I'm like, I'm not discounting it, but I'm also just, I mean, yeah, I mean, we'll see what, what, happens i mean i'm more interested in if it sparks a kind of truth and reconciliation moment like brian stevenson talks about about like let's talk about what the confederacy was and why and what mm -hmm. chattel slavery was and why and what ways that institution morphed on the other side of the civil war and why and how then that's that's really exciting but i mean the depth to which this revolution is going to have to go and I mean that a spirit-led revolution. Like I mean, it's just a total transformation of our culture. Um, it's going to be necessary, and that's a really daunting task that I'm committed to. But I yeah. just I think it's important to say it's not that those words don't matter, but it's also that if they they're not they're the beginning, not the end. Sure. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm not I telling it, you that. I know I'm not telling you well, that. Well, <laughs> those those symbolic actions matter. I mean, it matters that um, the Confederate flag was taken down in Columbia, South Carolina. It it matters. Well, and obviously we have to say that they matter because if, if we don't say that their removal matters, then the opposite is that their being there didn't matter. And we know right. it did. So, I mean, right. it really does matter. Symbols have power. Um, but it's just really, I think you're right. There's just a real battle going on. And I think that, you know, white supremacy is a power and principality of darkness. And that means it's shrewd and wily and it will shape shift and mm -hmm. gaslight. And um, yeah, so 
That's good. So what's astonishing you? Well, my astonishment is not happy. <laughs> so, um, you know, I am just really facing the reality of how long life is going to be disrupted and suspended. Um, I've read a couple articles recently about the pandemic at this point, just um, it was scientists saying like wearing masks and washing your hands and practicing social distance, like they're not perfect measures, but if they are observed, they will cut transmission. I mean, almost a hundred percent. And I read this one article that said, if everybody in the United States would wear a mask for 28 days, which is basically two life cycles of this virus, like it would be gone. It would be gone. And the reality is because this has become such a political issue and um, because what is being so clearly revealed is how how we understand what it means to be a citizen of a nation and how Christians understand loving their neighbor or not or freedom, <coughs> we just realize that there's no way that everyone is going to commit to wearing a mask. And so given that that is the case and given how long it is going to be before where a vaccine can be created. Um, I'm just realizing when we were saying, I think before we started recording that, you know, we're trying to do this work of figuring out how to live stream our services and how to move things online. And, you know, initially you're just kind of scrambling and it's kind of fun to reinvent everything on the fly and in real time. And now all of a sudden you're looking and thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to continue indefinitely. And the toll that's going to take on our communities, um, is just really incalculable and that we're going to have to do huge, you know, paradigm shifting, reimagining of, of, of what it means to be a church and what it means to worship. And that's just astonishing me, not that a virus exists, but astonishing me that, you know, in this age of, you know, technological and communication sophistication, there's such a simple solution out there and we cannot access it because the human heart is just deceitful. I mean, I, I sort of just want to say to everyone like, Hey, if you wear a mask for 28 days and, and we are wrong, like I'll buy you a beer. <laughs> like, I mean, what? <laughs> like, I, mean, like, I mean, if we're right and it would end this pandemic, like that, that's a huge win. And if we're wrong, then like, you know, you just look stupid and felt uncomfortable for 28 days. Like, it just seems like, I mean, it's just sort of devastating to me. You know, you and I, after all these years, I have kind of a more hopeful Pollyanna-ish view of human nature and you're more of a straight Calvinist. And I mean, just the level of total depravity that I see uncovered in this moment is really astonishing to me. Um, and especially in, in a, a part of the world that's so, that is so drenched in Christian culture, which obviously so much of that Christian culture has so little to do with the person and ministry of Jesus. And that's just, I mean, I'm just kind of sitting with that and, and warning that. And I mean, it's a hard illusion to lose. Um, yeah. What's so astonishing is that, um, at the heart of getting rid of this virus is loving one's neighbor and putting others before self all over the New Testament. 
and yet we want to wear the label Christian nation. And I don't know if we'll we'll see that um, hypocrisy. Well, and obviously, I mean, me having a more hopeful view and me being astonished to discover this about, I mean, the dominant culture in our society, I mean, that's just a function of white privilege. Like if I had been born in brown skin and gotten the talks that you had gotten all growing up, like I couldn't have lived with the delusion, illusion that people were mostly, I mean, you know, so it's just hard. And I don't ever want to become, I mean, I think that people are, are beautiful and precious and capable of just, I, I mean, really do carry a piece of the glory of God in them. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm never going to become, I don't want to become one of those people, one of those Jesus followers or one of those pastors who has sort of contempt for people. I mean, that's anathema to the gospel, but I just, I think sometimes we can sort of love people and gloss over the real depth and depravity of sin. And mm -hmm. it's just really easy to see that like people who I love are making choices and expressing opinions that are just devastating to me. And that doesn't make them less lovable. It just um, it makes them more visible in all their complexity. So. Absolutely. I, I remember when I was in my twenties, I discovered and was just in awe of uh, the history of black spirituals. And I bought CDs, I just, everything I could get my hands on. And I remember there was one spiritual that really just captured my attention. And it was just so um, powerful, powerful for me um, during you know, the crack ep epidemic and the AIDS crisis and so much going on in the world. But the um, song said, I'm a rolling, I'm a rolling, I'm a rolling through an unfriendly world. And that really spoke to me in my 20s. Um, and at the same time, I could, I could sing that song, I could love that song and see people as beautiful and precious and made in the image of God and yeah. see the world around me as dangerous and unfriendly. Um, and you have to hold both of those things together. Yeah, it's really interesting. We had a, a Bible study actually earlier today and one of our members um, was just sharing how in a small way he is older and in his seventies. And so what he experienced in this, in this pandemic is just how, what a huge proportion of his neighbors and his community just don't care if he lives or dies, right? Like just because, wow. you know, if he gets COVID because of his age and because of underlying health issues, he will not survive. And so, you know, he still has to go out and buy groceries and just the number of people who are not wearing a mask or who, you know, he's on social media. So when he sees the same memes that I think you, know, you see, that sometimes I see just people like mocking the idea of masks and, you know, and just so coming face to face with evidence of how many people um, just don't care if he lives and die or dies. Um, and, you know, he was saying, I know it's a small thing, but it really helps me catch a little bit of a glimpse of what it's like to live in this country with, with, black skin and realize there's just a whole lot of people who are saying, yeah, the way things are might be killing you, but it's working for me. So, you know, good mm -hmm. luck. Like mm -hmm. it's not my problem. And I, and I just thought, you know, it's always sort of, I always hold my breath a little bit when I 
when I hear white people <laughs> sort of talk about how they might understand what it's like the, the black experience in America is, but I, I mean, whatever, I just thought, yeah, like I get it. <laughs> like, because I think what everything that is revealed every time there's a, a, a video recording of a police officer murdering a black American in the street and America just kind of shrugs and moves on, what America demonstrates is we just don't really care if you die. Like that's yeah. just what we're, we're saying. And it's not, we're not saying that um, it's impossible to do it a different way. We're just saying like, eh, on balance, mm-hmm. the way it is is fine with me. And, and it shows us, it shows us once again, why that story, that parable that Jesus told that we called the good Samaritan, why, why it's so powerful, right? Because when the man was robbed and beaten and left for dead, it was the religious people who crossed right. on the other side. It was it was apathy, right? And that's what yeah. we're seeing from a lot of religious people. Right, it's, it's people looking at apathy. him and saying, if you'd been where you wanted to be doing, where you needed to be doing what you should have been doing, this wouldn't have happened to you. But since and I'm has, not it's, gonna not get it yeah, it's not, not my problem. It's not my problem. Yep. I will, we should say that, that when we preach the Good Samaritan parable this summer, like any Christian who believes that they are the Good Samaritan, that they would have been the Good Samaritan, but refuses to wear a mask is just lying to themselves. Like, mm. don't even lie to yourself and say, oh, I would have crossed to the other side of the road and I would have helped this person and I would have given money to care for their wounds. If you're not even willing to tie a mask on your face, then you're just lying to yourself. That sounds like a sermon to me. Mm, that's a good I mean, word. Yep. That's right. All right. So what are you thinking about? I am thinking about uh, grief uh, in this season. I heard this fantastic psychologist. um, Her name is Dr. Ajita Robinson. She wrote a book called The Gift of Grief. And um, (laughs) she was saying, you know, most of us, uh, especially, uh, you know, people like you and me, our lives are pretty busy and because of the pace of life, we can uh, run around here and there and do this and that and really not deal with our own grief and trauma. And, and you know, since childhood, just it's just in there. And she said, you know, COVID-19 has made us pause in many ways. And for a lot of people, stuff is coming up that they just have not had to deal with in a long time. And, you know, for someone like me, you know, when you have uh, police brutality and racism in the news, that kind of trauma in history comes up. And I have really been wrestling with uh, grief and loss and uh, anger and all those issues. And she just helped me a ton, Um, not only with, you know, losses around COVID, the loss of routine, the loss of... um, um, you know, I'm so used to my, my child going to school and I commute in. I have that time to um, yeah. relax and unpack the day as I commute back home. And, uh, and also, like I said before, the you know, police killings and um, African-Americans dying at a higher rate of COVID, all that stuff. I've just been wrestling with it. And it brought me to a place of... Um, like when I get really down, when I get to a despairing place, it's 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 paralyzing for me, and so I, I got to that place, and uh, I'm I'm glad to be climbing out of it, but um, 
but but it was a hard place, just emotionally hard. And I'm I'm grateful that I didn't overdo it. My temptation was to try to be more and do more and say more and be all things to all people. And I probably would have wrecked myself if I had done that. I, I just kind of went into a shell for uh, a while and uh, I'm, I'm glad to be climbing out um, because I, I had to do quite a bit of, of self-care. Um, but one of my takeaways from Dr. Robinson was letting go of guilt I've had in this season, like the yeah. guilt of, of not doing everything I've been wanting to do as a pastor, the guilt of not being my child's best teacher, the guilt of not spending as much time with my child as I want, the guilt of not being the, the spouse I, I, I feel like I need to be, just a, just a ton of guilt and um just listening to her unpack all the guilt and grief and those kinds of things just helped me with my own um, set of issues. And I would say to anyone listening to us, it's okay <laughs> not to be perfect in this season. It's okay. You may have grandiose ideas about what you need to be doing. It's okay to not do them all. You know, at the same time, I'm trying to, you know, I'm in the house with my family more and I think, okay, I need to be, I need to be doing more with my wife. I need to be doing more with my child. And at the same time, I'm thinking I need to be doing more for the church. And yeah, I'm just going to let go of all of that. And finally, for the first time in almost three months, next week, I'm going to take probably about three days off, just three days of no Zoom meetings, no, I'm not creating any videos. I'm just, I'm, I'm just gonna enjoy um, my family and ice cream and <laughs> all sorts of things, just, just for a few days. Because as you said a little while ago, we're, we're in this for the long haul. And when we first got into quarantine, I mean, like everybody, I just, I just took a deep breath and said, okay, we're doing this, thinking it was going to be six, eight weeks max. And my body and my mind are saying, okay, we're tired. Take a break. Well, I would say to anyone listening to us that you should stop listening to us and go listen to that podcast. Will you put it in the notes of the can you do that? The notes sure, I can do podcast? that. Yeah. yeah, I think that's good. And say it again one time again for people who, the name uh, of the woman and the. This is Dr. Ajita Robinson. Um, she's a psychologist, I believe, out of Maryland. Um, she was on the the Love Hour podcast. And uh, her book is called uh, The Gift of Grief. That is great. I identify. <laughs> Um, well, the thing that I have been thinking about this week, um, I've just been thinking a lot about white supremacy, which I mean, honestly, is never super far from my thoughts, but, um, and this metaphor that I have used all the time in preaching, um, I, my whole life as a, as a pastor, and I, I just wasn't, I, I wasn't a rent present at a church before I became a pastor enough to make this connection. But my whole life as a pastor, I've just been very aware that um, I've always 
just a moment, often serve churches that had recovery movements that have met on our campus. And I remember in my first church in Boston, one time I was, um, I and and a a friend, a colleague, we were doing like an on-site retreat for teenage girls. And so we were kind of downstairs in the basement area of the church. And at that church in South Boston, we just, I mean, South Boston was absolutely devastated by the heroin epidemic. Um, And so there were recovery meetings and at our church, I mean, every night of the week. Um, But on Friday nights and on Saturday nights, they had huge AA and A meetings that were kind of specifically targeted towards young people. And like, I mean, I mean, that was a, a growing and thriving church, but like easily, you know, more people in the hall for recovery on those two nights than in the sanctuary on Sunday mornings. Like people just, I mean, it was just amazing to see how far, um, you know, people were just ODing in the streets all the time. Um, I will say just for the sake of it, that um, South Boston was still in, a, in large ways, um, I mean, there were housing projects that were there that had been desegregated in the 90s, but it was still kind of a white Irish Catholic enclave kind of like historically that's what that part of the city was and that that remnant was still there um so you know a a vast majority of the people at those meetings would be young white people right like anyway whatever these meetings were going on and um we were downstairs doing this on um on campus lock-in thing for girls and you could hear just all the you know the chairs being moved and the feet stomping and the whatever and and one of the girls asked you know, what is like, what is that? What's going on upstairs? Like, it sounds like a party. And um, my friend Liz Hacken, she said, oh, well, that's resurrection. Like, that's what's happening upstairs is resurrection. And it was just the first time we thought about like, yeah, I mean, people who have basically recognized that they are addicted to something that's killing them and is, and is also causing them to you know, behave in ways that destroy relationships and and still and 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 um, lie and kill and just you know, so they 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 have this craving that's destroying them on every level, and I mean as the AA steps go, you know you're just you are powerless over it. You can't will yourself into a different um, relationship with your drug of choice, and um, and so ever since that day, I've just always really felt that uh, people in recovery make the best Christians because people in recovery understand. I mean, and obviously there's just, I mean, there's a a great, there are many great books, but there's a particularly great book written by Richard Rohr called Breathing Underwater. It's just talking about like the, um, the, the ways that the 12 steps come from the gospel and that the, the, experience that everyone who is in recovery has is absolutely analogous to something that every human has. Like every human is addicted to something. Every human has this like wound of sin in their bodies that, Mm. you know, we cope with it in different ways. And some of them are like obviously visibly destructive, but some of them are even rewarded by our culture, but all of them distort the God image in, in us and separate us from God and from one another. And, you know, so but I've always understood that people in recovery really understand grace in a different way than those of us who have never really had the experience of having to face, you know, our own culpability in our, in, in our sinfulness, right? Because I mean, I mean, addiction is a disease, yes, but it, 
but also, and this is a whole part of the program, like you take responsibility for the fact that you still, you know, have done the things that you've done while you were using and you've still hurt the people that you've hurt while you were using and you still are trying to make, you know, amends. And you also are recognizing that you are never going to be cured or healed. You will always be in recovery. And I, and I can't even, I mean, I can't even count the number of sermons that I've preached about how we all need to understand that we are addicts to sin and that we are invited by Jesus into a process of new life that looks like recovery. We never become, you know, independent, self-sufficiently healed. Like there never comes a time where we have to stop our ultimate radical dependence on the goodness and lifeblood of Jesus, right? Like I've That's preached good. over and over and over again, right? And and I've always like legitimately, naively thought like, you know, I just am a little sad that I will never have that depth of understanding like I would had I experienced addiction. And then, you know, I'm, I've been thinking as everyone else in the world, I hope is about just sort of, you know, how, what happened to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey, like just once again, you know, it's just right there in plain sight. Right. And, and, you know, for lots of reasons, some of which is the pandemic, people can't just turn the page and move on. And we're just saying like, you know, white supremacy and, you know, I've gone through this journey on like how to be anti-racist. Like I know we've talked about this on the podcast before of just being able to say like, you know, racism is, is in, it is in me. White supremacy is something that I was raised in and there's never going to be a point where I can just be like cured or healed and I won't have to do that work. And it's just so deeply, deeply, deeply uncomfortable and painful and hard to acknowledge that, this thing that you very much want to not be true about you is true. And you can't just turn a page and get cured and go past it. You, you can just be in a continual process of like discovery and growth and healing, but you will never just be done with it. You'll never just like an addict will never be able to just have one beer. Like a white supremacist will always, I mean, a person who grows up in white supremacy will always have to monitor you know, how they're reacting to different situations and different people. I mean, it just strikes, it struck me this week as I was thinking again about, you know, books I've read and interacting with people and that, and that there is no us in them. There's just, you know, particularly I will just speak for white people. There's just us, like white supremacy is in us, like no matter what it's in you and you are most dangerous when you are working under the delusion that it's not in you. Like that's when you really start hurting people because you just can't be taught and you can't learn and you can't anyway. And I just realized like, oh gosh, like my whole life I've been preaching this as this cute little metaphor. Like, isn't it wonderful um, that Christians in recovery understand grace in a different way? But here is my reality of saying like, no, 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 I am going to be in recovery from white supremacy for the rest of my life. And like it's not cute. (laughs) I mean, like I think just sort of recognizing that like in some ways, I mean, I have meant to show deep respect and honor for that community. And, but in reality, I was really distancing myself even internally from, from that. And when, you know, I shine a light to the ways that have I, you know, deplored police brutality? I mean, sure. Have I known intellectually what, what I believed in and what justice was and what love looks like. And I mean, sure. But have I also just 
interacted and navigated through the world in a different way because fundamentally my kids aren't I mean you know sure that is just also undeniably true and it's and it's and it's just really hard um it's really hard to just sit with that and not rush past it or or seek absolution and just you know recognize that you know as they say as as white people begin to you know grapple with these concepts of white fragility and white supremacy for the first time like you're going to feel really bad and then you might feel better for a while and then you're going to feel bad again i mean the reality is it's just this lifelong process of knowing this whatever this demon this sin and the power and it has over you and the susceptibility you have to it and knowing that you need you know the intervening grace of god and you need you know your worthiness comes not from your ability to heal yourself or cure yourself your worthiness comes from the sheer grace that god has given you um and, and that's, you know, that's where you find your peace. That's where you find your identity. That's where you find your hope. And so as many times as you need to sort of relapse and fall down, you, you can, because you're not walking in the delusion of your own, you know, righteousness anymore. Like you just have to lose forever that illusion that you really are a sinner. And I think, you know, what I, what I think is so interesting about this moment is how ill-equipped so many of us Christians are to actually reckon with our own sin, mm. like not, not yeah. your sin, <laughs> like not yeah. the sin of the person who's posting the meme about not wearing a mask, like not the sin of the officers who are kneeling on people's necks, like my, mine. And yeah. I want to like construct all of these hierarchies and all of these, you know, and the reality is like, I mean, the scandal of the gospel is it, we're the same and we're in the same need of the life giving transfusion of the grace of Jesus Christ and the same need of radical forgiveness and the same need of God's intervention to give us new birth. So anyway, that's what I'm thinking about. Well, I remember when I first started hanging out in uh, Presbyterian and more traditional type worship settings I remember as, you know, someone in my late teens, early twenties being struck by this thing in the worship service called the confession of sin. And what got my attention was that at the same time, it was both individual and corporate. This is about my sin and it's about our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then after this confession of sin, there was this assurance of God's forgiveness, but it didn't stop there. It was, and God, by the power of your spirit, would you help me <laughs> to yeah. walk in your ways and walk in your will, right? And then you come back the next Sunday, here's how again. I messed up again, right? And, and again. Uh, I think you're so right about the uh, connection to uh, recovery programs. I, I, like you, have great admiration for them. Yeah, I just, it's just different when you realize like, oh, all these years, I really have been talking about myself and yeah. I've been talking about as if that's something that other people have the experience of. And really, I've been drunk 
on white supremacy. And again, like, I just think it's really important that people would go like, well, you're sure you're white, but you're someone who has, you know, tried to be part of multi-ethnic communities and has been, you know, preaching sermons about injustice and against the evils of race. I'm like, yes, all of those things are true, but it doesn't, doesn't mean that my soul is not warped and distorted by the power and principality that is white supremacy. It doesn't mean that I am impervious to the way that that interacts with me. And, you know, I don't, I, I, I mean, I think the first step of people in recovery is just really going like, no, I am an alcoholic. And so to really go like, oh, I just hate really fight against taking a sober look at the fact that like I really have sin in me in this way. And I mean, the fact that I'm 44 years old and a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and have trouble intellectually, just such intellectual discomfort with sitting with that reality just says a lot about the depth I've been swimming at or mm. <laughs> the lack thereof. Mm. Right. Like I just, mm. but I mean, I also feel like it's just really important. Like I just, think it's really important to put that out there because you know I think it's this if you haven't been seeing it your whole life um you know it's important to realize even people who have been seeing it for a long time are still not like you know there's no shame in admitting that you're powerless to sin like there's shame in sin but not shame in admitting that you are powerless and in need of forgiveness and in need of a transfusion of righteousness and grace, that what you need is not in you. Like we, as a community of Jesus Christ, like if, if nowhere else on earth, we should be a place where there's just no shame in admitting that you really are weak. And I just, again, like the, the way that so many white Christians are so offended by truth when it comes to issues of racial justice, like we're just so offended and it makes me realize like we just have not heard the gospel at all like we mm -hmm. thought like oh the gospel's for tax collectors and and you know prostitutes but it's not really for me like whatever the metaphor to that is so yeah one of the one of the great things i love about recovery programs in communities is that they will say i am an alcoholic publicly in yep. community and i think that breaks shame that mm -hmm. breaks the power of of secrecy uh because when you stay in secrecy when you stay in denial that sin just has you in a vice grip when you can say it publicly in a community of people who will not judge you in a community of people who are saying the same thing i mean how freeing is that and mm -hmm. what would it look like for a group of white people to get together and, and confess that. Not in a way uh, that says, um, you know. <laughs> it's let, not let, a way to make you feel like you're a scumbag and you need to perpetually just walk around on your belly or whatever, just a way right. of saying like, this system is really, I mean, it's obviously really, really bad for black people, obviously. But I mean, it's terrible for white people. It's mm -hmm. terrible mm -hmm. for everyone. It is, you know, certainly stealing the humanity of white people, much stealing the lives of black people, but stealing the humanity and souls of white people. And so, yeah, I think sometimes people are so resistant to saying, like, I, I'm just renouncing white supremacy in myself and in my culture. And people are so 
uh, you know, hesitant to say that because it feels like confessing that they're just worthless scum and they forever and ever will be. And to be able to shift that metaphor to like, no, this is just a, a disease that we are infected with. And the first step of healing is, you know, whatever, admitting your powerlessness over your drug of choice. Um, like I was talking to a, a friend this week and she was saying like, you've got to, I mean, she's an African-American woman and she's saying like, we've got to start thinking about this, that racism is just rain and we're all getting wet. Nobody has an umbrella and we're all getting wet. Well, I'm sorry, white supremacy is a rainstorm and nobody's got an umbrella and every one of us is getting wet. Like no one is dry. Anyway, yeah. what are you preaching about? Well, um, I'm struggling this week <laughs> with... Uh, Say it again! Well, <laughs> I know. Here we go again. Well, here's what I'm thinking about preaching. Um, I remember preaching about uh, racism uh, the Sunday after Charlottesville. And I have not looked at those notes in a while, but I remember the text was Galatians. Uh, there's neither Jew nor Greek, mm. um, slave nor free, male nor female, we're all one in Christ Jesus. Um, and I, I have been very intentional in our congregation about letting, I hope people understand this, uh, just letting things marinate with people. Um, yeah. I am in my leadership. I can be a rescuer and I did not want to swoop in and rescue. Um, I, I pastor a majority white congregation, you know, as an African-American man, I didn't want to come in and rescue them from the discomfort. I also did not want to swoop in and then speak so that the the energy was on whatever I said. No, we're, we're going to deal with what's happening out there and in us. And so I've been very intentional about um, engaging some small groups, uh, especially our Bible study group. And I've had some one-on-one -on -one conversations, but I haven't, haven't preached on um, racism and the the church's response in this particular season. And so I'm, I'm thinking about that. And if, if the Lord is calling me to that, and so just kind of wrestling with that. Um, yeah. And it's, it's Friday. So <laughs> time has no meaning anymore. Yeah. Uh, same. Yes. same. Uh, well, you know, I am. Let me just say one other thing about that. And, and, and what I would like to do, um, and, and what I try to do just with my preaching in general is to talk about both the hurt and the hope, right? But I don't want to get to the hope too quickly. Yep. yep. Right? Yep. And I don't want to leave out the hope. Yep. And so I'm walking a fine line. I'm, I'm, I, and I don't, I, I'm saying I'm walking a fine line. I don't even know where it is at this point. I just know, um, ah, here's really what I want to say. I know the Holy Spirit has an agenda. Mm -hmm. And I want to be in that agenda. Mm -hmm. And I don't have clarity on it yet. And I, I don't want to be out of step with what the Holy Spirit is doing in the hearts and minds of 
a group of people that I love very much that are seeking to be multi-ethnic. I want to be um, in the way and not um, in, in, as in Christ is the way. Right, I want to right. walk in that way and not uh, be out of step with the spirit. So that's, that's what I'm, that's what's yeah. giving me pause right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's really interesting because I think that we, you know, we are called to speak in this moment from a like distinctly um, Christian gospel perspective. And so, I mean, there's no way to take that. That's Galatians three something. Like, there's no way to take that text seriously and be indifferent to the structures that are stealing and killing life from our, our brothers and sisters. Cause I mean, either it's happening to, you know, and so many people are like, well, it's just not really happening to people who matter. I mean, that's that whole Candace Owen video was like, it's bad. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, either we are, either we are people who value life or we're not. And either we're people who believe that we're one in Christ or we don't. So if you say you believe it, but you also just are really feel like it's not your issue, then, then you are, you, you are, you should be able to see something about what you actually believe. Right. Mm. I mean, and so if you want to be blind to that, that's fine. But I mean, this isn't like all of a sudden, like, Oh, the pastor is developing a justice agenda. Like, no, no, no. Like, Hey, God has a justice agenda. Have I told you get that? Like one of, one of my friends from the church a couple of weeks ago came into the sanctuary, um, after worship. So she, we had done the live stream, but he'd been listening on his, on his car and was going around doing some stuff. And, he said, you know, for the first time, it just, I realized social justice is justice. I was like, yes. Wow. And I, I mean, whatever, like, I just think there are some terms that have been so mm. demonized in the public square, like in the secular, you know, that, you know, but like, it's just justice. Like, so, I mean, if you think that God doesn't care about justice, then carry on. But if you read the Bible, you realize, no, God absolutely does. And so, you know, this is just our father's business and we need to be about it. Um, but, you know, from a very particular space of like Jesus died for sinners. And um, so there's no one irredeemable. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's just a really interesting um, space to be in that it has to be because there's just a lot of activists who I really respect and I have no, I mean, I, I think they're saying exactly what they need to say um, and, and their voice is valuable and needs to be heard and their influence needs to be felt. And they're just saying things that I would not say as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. because, you know, that I, I just have a different way of understanding how we're called to interact with people who are just soul sick on sin. Um, well, and frankly, that was one of the things that was so brilliant and faithful about Martin Luther King Jr., right? Mm -hmm. So on, on the one hand, he had um, white conservative clergy criticizing him, especially in the South. And on the other side, um, people in the Black Panther movement criticizing him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he said, no, I'm, I'm going to walk the path of the cross. I'm going to walk the path of right. Jesus. And that, that put him in a very particular, a very unique place. And I think you're right as ministers of the gospel, that's our call. But I mean, to the people who would say what that looks like is 
you know, if you're walking in love, then no one will ever be mad at you or no one will oh, ever find no. you radical. I mean, like, that's just crazy. Like, <laughs> I mean, he was the most hated person alive when he was killed and also gonna, he was killed. Right? Yeah, <laughs> so I was going to say, and it just, will be radical. It'll be just, plenty radical. Just yeah. name the prophets of the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it'll be plenty radical because walking in love towards someone does not include lying to them so that they will feel good about themselves. Like, that is not mm. um, what we have to do. So. Mm. Um, what are you preaching? You're in Philippians. I am in Philippians. I am struggling in Philippians because I don't have a library. <laughs> I do not have enough books. <laughs> it's really hard. I'm having to do this with basically unmediated uh, interface with the Holy Spirit, and it's very scary. Um, but I, hey, I, am, I loaned you some commentaries. I know. I know. And I'm grateful for them. Not very many. <laughs> I know. And I am super grateful for them. Um, I think that I think where I am going, and I sort of tremble to name this because this is a really hard needle to thread, um, but I I want to talk about subversive joy. Like I want to talk about the kind of joy of the in the Lord that allows us to do really hard things and endure undeserved suffering in a way that gives us power and redemption and solidarity, right? Like that kind of joy. And I read this like quote from Brian Sand that was really helpful. He was talking about like, you know, he, he, as many biblical scholars do, just has this big metaphor of empire versus kingdom, right? So the empire is whatever, it's the Roman empire or the American empire, but you know, the secular powers and principalities and institutions of control and border. And, you know, that the empire wants to say, that joy is something that um, you know is is earned or bought, and so then access to joy becomes controlled by the empire. But the gospel truth is that you know joy is is a fruit of the spirit and is a gift of the Holy Spirit, and so you know the Holy Spirit needs no you know co-signing on any human institution or any human circumstance, and so there's a way to live in joy that has nothing to do with denying reality or co-signing on evil or mm -hmm. like glorying, like glorifying suffering, right? Um, but there is a joy that is power and is a power that allows us to thrive even in deeply um, dehumanizing situations and I just have this sense that like I don't like I don't know how to articulate that you know I worry that you hear somebody talking about joy in the midst of a pandemic and you know a, 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 a last maybe a last gasp effort to undo you know the power of white supremacy in this nation you have somebody sitting in the corner talking about joy it could just sound like the worst kind of mm. tone-deaf trivialization but I just think that's not what it is. Like Jesus, I think was a deeply joyful person because yeah. of the spirit that was on him and in him. I define joy as anticipating good from God because of your reconciliation with God. Well, and, I think and, the challenge with that is, I'm sorry. I just, I think that, I think so many times we're going to be like, well, I can have joy because of what I'm going to get someday. And I just feel like Paul is writing in chains and like really is, experiencing joy in that moment. And that's what I feel like we need, not just anticipatory joy, you know, a way to have the deep of joy 
of the already of the kingdom of God. Yeah, I don't think the joy is anticipatory at all. I think the joy is right now present. I think the good that is coming is anticipatory. Okay, okay. It is Psalm 23, goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. It may not be good right now, but goodness and mercy are following me. It is, we shall overcome someday. It is, Mm. I may not get to the mountaintop with you, but we as a people will get to the mountaintop or the promised land. Uh, it is, it is the, the good is anticipatory. And because you know that there is nothing in all creation that will stop that good thing of God from happening, that justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, that the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and they will not hurt or destroy an all my holy mountain that the idol of white supremacy will be shattered by the power of God, that that is coming. It's not fully here yet, but because you know it's coming, well, then there's joy in the present. And that, I mean, that's that, what I mean by joy. And that, that way, there's joy now that allows, you know, I think just people to let go of the petty benefits they've gotten from the structures as they are, right? Like they're just, Mm. I think people, I mean, I guess white people in particular, I mean, but people in general, just, you know, that's when Paul is talking about, like I counted all rubbish, like everything I had before when I was on top in the system, I can't, it all seems like garbage in comparison to the joy I know now, the joy that I'm experiencing now in Jesus. And I think, you know, for so often, I mean, especially in the Presbyterian Church, because we are we're kind of an agenda-based <laughs> oh, know, I thought community. You were say something else. I thought I thought you were going to say something else. Okay, go ahead. What did you What did you think I was going to say? I thought you were going to say in the Presbyterian Church, we can we can be um, the Presbyterians are not known as a people who express joy. Yeah. And I think it's because we don't often experience joy. Like, I think we have this Protestant work ethic of like, Jesus did the cross for me. So now it is my bounden duty and responsibility to be a good steward of the talents I've been given and work, you know, I'll take it from here, Jesus. Instead of, I think what we could learn from so many of our Pentecostal and evangelical brothers and sisters is just how to experience joy that comes from being in the presence of Jesus now and that far from being a like hideout you know playhouse to to hang out and to avoid the to avoid the world and its suffering that is sort of the source of something so precious and something that can't be taken from you that gives you then the strength and the courage to engage with the powers and principalities of evil I don't know. I need a library is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm also sitting in a very squeaky chair. I'm sorry. I hope you can't hear that. But, um, but you very, have birds singing in your backyard. Yes. Thank and you. that chair is very squeaky. The chair is squeaky. I was sitting on the other side of the porch and my neighbors are outside in their own backyard. So they should be able to be outside. And anyway, whatever. It's a problem. This is just a very authentic podcast this week. But I think it's coming to an end. Um So thank you all very, very much for listening to us and um, giving us an excuse to talk to each other. We have not been on a walk together in three months. It's a really sad thing. That's a really, really sad thing. I know. 
But I'm glad we have a podcast. And if you want to hear this message that Yolando is preparing, um, you can search for Dorita Church's YouTube channel. Um, you can find them on Facebook, Dorita Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. You can Google Dorita Church in Charlotte, North Carolina and get to their website. So many options. Also, the Podbean website. Um, for Dorita Church. And if you want to find out more about The Grove, uh, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. Um, and you can also listen to um, the podcast of our messages uh, at iTunes. You can search The Grove Church Podcast. So thanks for listening. And we will talk next week.